You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hey everyone, this is another episode of the Epic Marvel Podcast, and this is actually going to be our first episode that talks about the amazing Spider-Man series of epic collections, beginning with Cosmic Adventures. to you my co-host Adam Chapman say hello Adam hey everybody we are glad that you are with us uh, on this show and you're actually going to be with us for all of the Spider-Man episodes right absolutely can't wait to talk about them let's get to know you a little bit more tell us what got you into comics and um, and what brings you up to this point now where we are talking about it on a podcast all right. Well, uh, I feel like I actually got into comics a lot later than a lot of people I know. Um, I was probably a lot of people I find you know get in around four or five years old. I don't think I really started reading comics more at all until I was more like seven or eight. A little later than a lot of my, uh, uh, I guess, my brethren in the comicdom world. Um, and it wasn't till I was in maybe junior high that I actually kind of started buying comics on the regular and, and going to stores and, and making it a, a point of kind of building a collection. I don't know why it took me that long. But it, it was, I think, I guess, 1995. So I was around 12 years old, and that's when it kind of a light kind of struck, and I was like, you know what? I really want to read more of these. And I think it was during the X Men um, storyline, the onslaught, which has always been a, a big deal to me because that was kind of my entry point into buying comics on the again on a regular basis from a store. I had previously picked up some issues here or there previous, especially the year previous. I had uh, bought part of the Age of Apocalypse, and actually maybe even a, a year or two before that, I had started, you know, buying a few issues of Amazing Spider-Man during the Maximum Carnage saga, but that was about it. Um, it wasn't until Onslaught kind of hit that I was buying on a regular basis and I wasn't missing issues. And it only kind of went snowballed from there. I became a huge comic book fan ever since. It wasn't until I was maybe in the early 2000s where I started branching out and not just being a Marvel zombie and actually reading uh, DC comics and uh, understanding more of, the, of that world and kind of diving into the back catalog and trying to immerse myself as much as possible. Uh, it was around that time, 2004, I started uh, working for a, a comic book website called Comic Stream at the time, just writing reviews. And uh, at first, I was writing you know a couple of reviews a month, and suddenly I was I think I was reviewing like 15 books a week at one point. It was just an insane amount of work, but wow. it was so much fun just to be uh, able to you know talk about these things I love so much. And then um, at some point, that site kind of died, and I wasn't really doing anything anymore. And in 2012, I was like, you know what? I've been listening to all these podcasts. I should start one of my own. Uh, so that's what kind of lay, uh, gave rise to my current podcast called Comic Shenanigans, uh, named by my wife. Um, and ever since I, in 2012 is when I started. So this will be our fifth year as of August. Um, so originally it was me and a couple friends, but because of people moving away and schedules and kids and all that kind of fun stuff, it kind of became a solo show. And I think about two and a half years into the show, I started focusing a lot of my efforts on trying to get uh, comic book creators on the show to uh, talk about their work. And it really was more of that, even if no one listened to the show, it would mean a lot to me because I would get to reach out and talk to people that 
in my wildest dreams, I never thought I'd ever get to talk to people like Tom DeFalco, Ron Friends, Eric Larson, uh, all these amazing people whose work I'd enjoyed over the years, being able to actually talk to them about their work and kind of tell them how much I appreciated it, it meant the world to me. So that's kind of what I do now. So that kind of bring us, brings us current, Curtis. Well, I know that I appreciate your interviews. Uh, when I met you on the Marvel Masterworks forum, I started uh, listening to the, some of your back catalog, and boy, there's some, there's just some amazing content there. And uh, Thank you. we are going to actually be using some of that content in this episode. You'll, uh, we will, um, we'll, we'll cut away to a few clips of some relevant people talking about the issues that are found in this epic collection. And uh, yeah, so if you want to hear the full interviews then head on over to Comic Shenanigans. Is it just comicshenanigans.com? Uh, good question. It's actually comicshenanigans.podbean.com, uh, or you can just uh, find us on iTunes. We are there as well. Um, I think as of this recording, at least, we have about 438 episodes so far. Um, I'm, I'm seeking episode 500. That'll be coming out, if I time it correctly, it's actually going to come out on the fi uh, five-year anniversary of the show. So I'm very excited about that Thanks. on August 12th. <laughs> wow. Well, there you go. Holy cow. That That is quite prolific. <laughs> what was the very first epic collection that you ever bought? That's actually a great question. Uh, it's not this one. Um, I think it was actually, I was looking at this the other day, I'm pretty sure it was the Daredevil um, Fall from Grace, which originally was not solicited as an epic collection, and then once it came out, it was an epic collection. Um, I actually originally had, was really excited in the program, knew I couldn't necessarily buy as many as I wanted, and I kind of had to decide in my head which one it would be, and then when Daredevil was kind of inserted into the program, I was like, okay, well, I'll probably get that. I also really wanted Spider-Man, to be honest, though, Cosmic Adventures really turned me off in terms of the content. And I was like, you know what? I don't even know if I want to pick this up. And I think it was actually the third Amazing Spider-Man epic collection I actually bought, which is kind of ridiculous. Like, why wouldn't I have just bought it right away? Um, something about it just kind of turned me off. And you can't put your finger on it? Uh, I, I think part of it was that some of the content was already in the, I believe, the Todd McFarlane omnibus. So I already had some of the content elsewhere. Um, and I just, it, it wasn't a period I necessarily thought was a, a great period of Spider-Man comics. Right. Uh, but I was glad to finally pick it up, though, because you, you can't be missing a volume. <laughs> like, yeah, right. You know, well, like, it, 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 it's, yeah. And there is some good stuff in here. Uh, going through it just recently, like I did, it's just, it's amazing. Now, this volume in particular holds a special place in my heart because the very first comic book I ever owned was um, Web of Spider-Man number 60 when uh, when he fights Goliath. Okay, so, and interesting. That's, that's in this volume. My Yeah, my first, I was, uh, I don't know, I was 9 or 10 or something like that. I got it at a birthday party. And um, and then I got. I remember a couple, those. <laughs> yeah, um, and this was when you could still buy them on on spinner racks at the department stores or drug stores or something like that. And um, and so I I, I found a, f a couple more issues around that time. And this so you know believe it or not, Cosmic Spider-Man was actually my first introduction to Spider-Man. Oh, <laughs> he wow. can do all these amazing things, and uh, and you know I was like, wow, he can fly. He, he could shoot laser beams out of his eyes. This is, this, he's the best superhero ever. <laughs> and not knowing that, uh, you know, that was just a, a, a little blip in his long career. Um, I quickly figured that out, though, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, this is, um, I was excited to get this volume because I've actually, I've read 
some of the cosmic adventures story but not all of it because i was only you know eight and not or nine or ten or whatever and, and not buying all the issues as they came out um and i never read anything after that so until we got to some of the larson stuff that would be in the in the volume that comes after this so i was uh yeah i was thrilled that this was kind of the lead-off book now i uh i didn't buy it until quite a bit later um I got Interesting. The, I got volume one first, and then I was thinking I'll just uh, as the volumes come out in sequential order, um, I'll buy them. But then that proved to be uh, not the right way to buy these books because <laughs> they're all no, definitely yeah, not. So I was I was like, oh yeah, forget that. I'll just get them all. So uh, yeah, that's uh, that's where we're at now. Um, so this will be an interesting conversation then. If you were not thrilled with this content. Um, initially, we'll see how your opinion changed after reading it, um, and then we'll see how my opinion changed or changes it from my, you know, my ten-year-old self. Yeah, briefly, Adam, do you want to describe what we can find inside this volume? Sure. I mean, uh, it's it's an interesting, it's a very interesting book in and of itself because uh, when you open it up, you're basically in the middle of crossovers, like in the middle of an Axe of Vengeance crossover, which now we're so far removed that it almost seems quaint. Um, the idea of having some of the, the biggest Marvel villains kind of coming together and deciding to swap villains with each other so that they can, you know, uh, attack the heroes, uh, which is actually, now that I think of it, another place where I had some of this content already, which might have been why I wasn't as excited about it when it was first announced. Oh, in I have the Axe of Vengeance Omni? Yeah, so I have those. So I have a lot of this content there. So now that I think about it, I, I'm, I'm kind of double and triple dipping in some cases on some of this content. But you have Axe of Vengeance going on. You have Spider-Man getting cosmic powers. And so you have these two storylines kind of converging in, in a weird way. That's kind of the... the gives it the name uh, Cosmic Adventures. There used to be a very old trade paperback by that name, just covering those particular issues. Uh, and then we move on from that to just getting Amazing Spider-Man content, because this is one of the volumes where you end up getting Web of Spider-Man and Spectacular Spider-Man issues, which is both a good and bad thing, depending on how you look at it. I mean, this is you know supposed to be covering the Amazing Spider-Man, and now we're getting the kind of the offshoot books. Uh, it's something that is going to be a problem, not a problem, but a challenge for a lot of the epic collections as they roll into the 90s period because you have stuff that becomes so interconnected with other books. Uh, I know that an upcoming Avengers uh, epic collection has that problem with um, uh, Operation Galactic Storm, which was a massive crossover. <laughs> yeah, well, and that, that epic collection volume, I think, only has like two or three issues of Avengers proper, <laughs> and the rest are all the tie-ins or the other parts in other books. Well, I was just going to say that's kind of in some ways the advantage and disadvantage of these epic collections is that it wants to present to the reader this, you know, comprehensive vision of if you just want to understand everything about the Avengers, you'll get everything in one collection. And unfortunately, in something like that, you can't, you know, not include all these massive tie-ins. But at least in something like that, all those books are basically Avengers solo characters. It's right. not like you're getting X-Men crossovers at the same time. Right, yeah, that will come later on down the road. 
Um, That's going to be interesting of what they do with you have stuff like blood ties that comes later. And, yeah. you know, what about when you have Avengers crossing over with West Coast? How does that work? So that's I'm really intrigued how the program is going to develop when you have more of those questions. And I'm sure it's given the guys mapping all this stuff out who actually work for Marvel, not just all the unofficial mappers that we all love on Marvel Masterworks for them. Um, a lot of headaches. Yeah. Well, my big question is if... Um... If if they like a, something like blood ties, which is distinctly an Avengers and an X Men story, um, are we going to get the full story in Avengers and in the X Men line as well? Like, uh, I I think it might be. I mean, I I think the same thing is going to happen at some point in the X Men or Avengers or X Men and Fantastic Four lines. You're probably going to get those mini series that were X Men versus Fantastic Four. Right. Uh, I mean, just make you can't really not include them in either. Right. And then if you're, but I think that makes sense. If you're just an X Men fan, you're not going to miss out on content. If yeah. you happen to be buying both, you get more. Yeah, and that's kind of just the the nature of the business. If you are a completist, you're going to be double dipping. Like you've already you've already mentioned, you've been doing that with this volume. But you <laughs> yes. know, for someone who is only um, only buying Fantastic Four. And not buying X Men, it you kind of do need to have the X Men versus Fantastic Four in, in both of them to appease the, both of those groups. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, that's that, that stuff's easier though because it's small. Like it's four issues; it's not going to take up a lot of content. Right. It's when you get to the larger things when it becomes a lot more of a problem, or you start having recap pages, which in some instances I almost wouldn't mind. Them, like th this is actually a perfect um, example of this amazing Spider-Man Cosmic Adventures volume in that did you really need the, um, the and we'll talk about this the issues of Spectacular and Web or could you have just had a recap page does it right. change that much because Michelini or Michelini is writing Amazing Spider-Man but Conway is writing the other two books yeah. so it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting to have them all lumped together like that. It is, and we will definitely get that in when we talk about the single issues because there are threads that are specific to Spectacular Spider-Man that don't get resolved and never will in this line of Epic Collections because it's not about Spectacular Spider-Man. No. Okay, what do we need to know? Before, if you are jumping into this, is there any information from a, from before this epic collection that you need to know going into here? Uh, Peter and MJ are married. That's, yep. I guess, the biggest one. Um, Flash Thompson has no luck and love. <laughs> um, another big thing is, and this is something I always forget until I read these comics, is uh, the um, Jonathan Caesar plotline for yeah. MJ, that Mary, Mary Jane had a crazed stalker. Um, he, I think, abducted her at some point, yep. and she really holds these, these emotional uh, and mental scars from that experience, and that really is kind of passing, uh, casting a shadow over her her actions and how she's thinking throughout this volume. Well, and I think um, in the very first issue, they're moving into a new apartment, and what the volume doesn't tell you is that Jonathan That's Caesar right. got them evicted from their previous apartment. On Christmas, right? On Christmas. So that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, and so that's the kind of person we're dealing with, just a scumbag, and, and uh, that's important to know when you're going in here. Um, the other thing I think you need to know here is that Thomas Fireheart has recently bought the Daily Bugle. That's right. Um, as And he's done that as a way of saying thank you to Spider-Man, because he knows this Peter and Spider-Man the same person. Um, he did that to make Peter's life easier. 
um, so the jo- J. Jonah Wait, James. Does thing. he? Oh, no, does, sorry. Does, does he know that the same person, or is he just doing it as a as a as a, uh, a debt of honor to Spider-Man because Spider-Man knows that Jameson's been a thorn in his side? Right. Yeah. Actually, I think that I think you're right there. So um, he's doing it so that the bugle will stop ragging on him all the time. Which is an interesting status quo, and it's one I, again I forget because we so um, in our minds always kind of have Jameson linked to the bugle. Although really, it's been what eight, seven or eight years since it's actually been true um, in the comics. But um, right. you know, looking back, I forget that there was another change in ownership in the past, and that he wasn't in charge. Yeah, yeah, and um, that is one of the plot lines that happens because Amazing Spider-Man kind of stays away from his daily bugle career. Um, during this period, and it's um, spectacular. Spider-Man deals with that a lot. Talks mm-hmm. about Sp- Peter Parker, the photographer, and um, so that's we get a little bit of that storyline, but then it kind of doesn't go anywhere in this volume. Um, anything else we need to know here? Well, I guess acts of vengeance is happening. <laughs> like- yeah. Yeah, so that's that's the biggest one because it's never really it's not well explained here. We see a, cons- a consortium of villains kind of working together. We have some vague idea that they're having villains go against heroes that they don't normally face, and that's really all you need to know is that there's a bit of this kind of castling going on, um, people going up against you know unusual targets. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's there's some great crossovers throughout that storyline. Like if you ever find on the cheap, I don't think you can anymore. The uh, Axe of Vengeance um, on the bus, it's fantastic just for all the weird pairings we get yeah and that's um that's one of the things i didn't like is that the story did seem sort of removed um we we don't even find out we sort of happen to find out who's behind the whole thing which we'll get into a little bit later um but not in any way that really makes sense um because that is dealt with in another book true although to be honest it never made that much sense elsewhere either. <laughs> right yeah um we could also mention that this is eric larson's debut as regular penciler for the book yep. he he had done a few issues before this some some pretty notable ones too i mean um one of the things i got to talk to him about was how his debut in spotty and his first issue is not even in this collection it's much earlier much earlier than i even realized and it's a terrible issue uh <laughs> Which I mean, you should. I, I don't think you. It's a, it's a long enough story. I don't know if you're gonna be able to use all of it, Curtis. But if you can go listen to that episode of my podcast, because it's uh, it's a very entertaining story. He does not pull pull his punches at all. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so this is. Um, but then here we have. Uh, um, there's actually an interesting clip of him that I, I will play of him talking about how he became the regular penciler on uh, on this book here. So I'll. Uh, yeah, let's just listen to that now. Um, it was a it was a tryout kind of thing where they they had me do another issue of it just as they weren't they weren't sure hundred percent where they were going and they were they were weighing uh, a number of people. Um, I think there's a guy named David Ross who who mm-hmm. is, is that his name something like that was was he had done a uh, an inventory job and I think he was in the running. I know I was in a running. Uh, I know they had Colleen Duran do an issue to see how she would do. Um, and for whatever reason, they, I ended up getting the gig. Uh, and I think part of it was just, well, this guy can do it, will do it, and 
can kind of emulate what has gone before, so it's not going to be that much of an abrupt change from one guy to the next. We have some reader questions from the Marvel Masterworks forum, so I just want to uh, um, ask these here so we can answer them. Um, who is the better Spider-Man artist, Larson or McFarlane? Hmm. Uh, do you want to take this one first? Sure. Well, I think um, just strictly because of nostalgia and when I happen to be buying Spider-Man comics, it's going to be Larson. Um, because my, my first expo- exposure to uh, Spider-Man is actually the story where Venom has Spidey trapped on a... Like, they battle it out on an island, and he supposedly <laughs> kills Spider-Man. And, okay, and yeah. And he's got the huge tongue and the green slime and everything, and that was my first exposure to that character, so that's what I hold dear, you know. Okay. Um, going back to McFarlane um, just seems a lot more tame, if you know what I mean. Yeah, well, you know, that's such an interesting question because, I mean, I, I always wonder, like, if you didn't have McFarlane first, would Larson's Spidey even look anything like that? Um, I mean, Larson took aspects of what McFarlane had done and then adapted it to his own kind of kinetic, a uh, little bit more um, cartoony style. Sure. But you still, ha- you still had all the exaggerated movement that McFarlane had really popularized it or at least made a big thing. Cause, but prior to that, you often had Spider-Man swinging like Tarzan. Um, and then suddenly he was doing all these crazy poses and Larson definitely takes that and develops it in his own way. So I don't know how much of Larson's style you would have without McFarlane. That being said, being able to kind of go, go and look back, uh, McFarlane's style is definitely darker. And we know that, you know, later on he'd do Spawn, a very dark character. So as much as his Spider-Man is very kinetic and it looks great, um, he doesn't have that kind of um, that buoyant aspect to his art that Larson definitely employs. So actually, I would agree with you. I think I do prefer Larson as an artist, although I do love some of the details that McFarlane would use because his pencils are so tight. Like you don't always realize it, but some of the details he'll put in there as well. It's very tight stuff. Whereas if you look at Larson's, it's a lot looser. And I do think that works for a character like Spider-Man because there's an inherent sense of humor to him. So when you have the looser kind of facial structures, etc., it kind of works. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, that depends a lot on the the inker you have as well, because the um, well, I'll, I'll, I want to mention this when we get into the issues as well. The inker he has in that first issue that in his collection is just so completely different than the inker he has later on, and there's a lot more McFarlane similarities in there. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll get to that. Um, the other question is: Was Venom overexposed, or did Marvel make the right move in cashing in on his popularity? Hmm. Well, from a financial aspect, they made the right move because they needed money. Um, yeah. I, I mean, it's interesting because I think Michelini, or not Michelini, I guess um, I think that Salakrup had the right idea of trying to make um, Wolverine, sorry, Wolverine, Venom stories an event uh, that you weren't overexposing him. He had direct control over him and he kept them in the line, wouldn't let other people use them, and it made it more of an event when you saw him so if you look at the you know the over the three or four years since the character's first appearance he does show up in a number of stories 
but he's not everywhere. He's just an amazing, and it is kind of almost like an annual event to have a big Venom story. The minute that um, I guess Fingeroth comes in and kind of opens the gates and says, "If people want to use him, let's use him. He's popular. He's going to sell stuff." Uh, from a business aspect, it makes sense to sell more books. From a creative aspect, it starts to water down the character because it's not as special. Like it, it just wasn't. I mean, by the time you get to Maximum Carnage, it's very played out, and the idea that you can't just have Venom keep coming up, coming back. Now you have to come up with ways or weird scenarios for him to still be operating and kind of become a hero. Like it's it's such an odd way to take the character, but they had to because he was the next Punisher. He was the next Wolverine. Like you had to let him explode because they wanted to make money. Yep. Unfortunately, it does dilute his effectiveness as that big character that was popularized by McFarlane and Larson uh, and even uh, Bagley to a certain extent uh, and Michel Michelini, obviously. Well, let's jump into the issues now and uh, okay. tackle these one at a time and, and see what happens. Uh, we can start off with issue number 326. It's called Gravity Storm, and this is the beginning of the Acts of Vengeance. Um, <laughs> and it's, uh, it's an interesting story. Um, Peter and Mary Jane are just having a housewarming party in their new apartment, and um, Graviton is uh, he comes in and uh, lifts the Daily Bugle out of the ground to try and attract Spider-Man's attention and, uh, and, and does. And they have a little battle and then everything goes back to the way it was before. Yeah, if I had read this when I was six or seven years old, I would have liked it a lot more. This is not a good issue. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so different than the rest of the book. And I think part of it is the sense of humor. It's kind of over-the-top goofy. Yeah. Um, well, I I think I bring a lot of baggage into this, so I have to kind of, and I, I'm going to admit that, is that I, my first real exposure to Graviton was in Thunderbolts, and Graviton was pretty awesome in Thunderbolts. Uh, uh, in fact, there was one storyline, I think around issue like 55 or something, uh, was when he was up against the Redeemers, and he like had every hero on Earth was suspended around, kind of around in the atmosphere, because he kind of took everyone else everyone out in one fell swoop that's the graviton i kind of knew i knew this super powerful guy who had you know some issues in his head but he's fairly confident and then we get this guy here and he's <laughs> such an awkward he's such an awkward buffoon yeah. although he's not the only person in this book who's going to do something really awkward if you want to get awkward it's magneto taking a stroll through a park and then sitting down on a park bench in his full costume <laughs> yeah, um yeah. that's super weird but so you have like this really weird graviton he pulls up a building really for no reason uh, and then he puts it back like that's not going to cause huge structural damage. Right. Like, I was going to mention it, that too. <laughs> they, they just kind of gloss over stuff. The um, I, I'm not a huge fan of the art here by Duran, um, especially on the attire. Um, it's atrocious. Like there's one character here who looks like they're from uh, Frank Miller's uh, Dark Knight Returns uh, in terms <laughs> yep. of with like the weird spiked hair up and like the weird slanty glasses like it, it just it just seems so odd well, even mj doesn't quite feel like herself and i don't know what peter's wearing but he, he looks his like little sequin sleeveless shirt <laughs> yeah like how is this like like this is for a party like he honestly looks like he either ran out of laundry or he's yeah. actually a stripper like well, i'm I, not sure i think um part of it is that um 
part of it is that this is the 80s we're talking about so we did have a lot of that punk kind of influence and like yeah. there was really odd stylistic choices but then you couple that with Colleen Doran's artwork and she she has a distinctly feminine style to her to her art mm. and um and it might I don't think it's really well suited to to Spider-Man and then when like she's actually I found that she's actually a pretty good storyteller I'll agree with that yes I would actually agree with that because all all of it's pretty clear and concise it's just you also have to think it's such a tonal shift because you know in the last 20 something issues you've had Todd McFarlane with one issue by Eric Larson and then you have this yeah and it's a standalone issue it really feels like a like a like an inventory story except it ties into the whole acts of vengeance plot so mm-hmm. it it was interesting when Eric Larson mentioned that she was trying out to be a regular penciler. Like that would have been very interesting if I wonder how the sales would have gone if she became regular penciler. Yeah, well here's here's one thing I wanted to point out. Um the last page of the issue, the the bottom half of the page what is going on? Like, it, I, I, this is this is. I mean, I know that there's always an element of soap <laughs> opera and a romance to Spider-Man. Yeah. But it, there's a lot of weird connotations in like the the weird lighting, the the creepy candle. Um, I don't know. Like the whole thing. I understand that they're trying to show an idea of um, romance and compassion. Not even romance, actually. It's more companionship and and Peter being there for her. Uh, for Mary Jane, yet it takes on this weird vibe, especially because on the left hand of the page, it's this awkward, like, is she naked under that sheet? Is she, like, beckoning? <laughs> like, it, she almost has, like, a Venus de Milo kind of expression, like, uh, arm up, and then the next one, he's kind of, like, I again, it's supposed to be this sweet moment, and I, I just felt the art made me feel a little awkward and weird about it. <laughs> yep, yep. It is definitely too bad that the, the volume has to start off with this issue, but, you know, kind of has to with the Acts of Vengeance storyline. Absolutely, and you don't really want to end a volume with this either. No, it's, right. like, it's it's a bit of an awkward. It was always kind of going to be an awkward issue to start or end a collection with. Um, can you imagine if this was the first issue of Amazing Spider-Man you ever bought? Like, would you continue? I don't know. Well, let's move on to uh, Spectacular Spider-Man number one fifty-eight. It's called the Paste and the Power. Uh, <laughs> do you want to introduce this one here? Sure. So this one we've got, uh, you know, Jerry Conway and Sal Buscema. Now, I didn't know until years later that, you know, this was, you know, Conway's obviously second uh, book time on the Spider books. And he was writing about this and Webb, uh, giving them much more of a coherent feel between the two. Uh, as a kid, I really did not appreciate Sal Buscema. And now I feel so bad about how I felt as a kid because I've come to really love his artistic style, his storytelling sensibilities. And uh, I love looking at his art. But as, as a kid, he was my least favorite favorite spider artist bar not like like i remember i would read issues with like tom lyle on spider-man you'd have mark bagley on amazing uh, i'm trying to remember um alex Saviuk. Uh, yeah he was on uh on web. I guess web and then and then you had busema and busema just it felt like such just odd you know hodgepodge of uh, it just and at the time also it was a too dark a style the inks here are super light by esposito they are like yeah. this it, it, if you didn't know this first issue was by busema I mean, I guess the faces give it away, they do. but there's a lot of stuff here where it does not look like your standard Buscema. And uh, for me, someone who's come to love his art, it, it kind of takes me away. If you think about him uh, and the work he was doing on, on Thor with Simonson, like that, it, it's so different th- to this. It, 
well, I, I totally is just a, a different kind of book with Spider-Man being so grounded and not not as fanciful, and I wonder if that has something to do with it too. That could be it. Yeah, it's interesting too. The even the uh, the relationship we get between Peter and MJ in these pages is very different because obviously in Amazing you have Michelinie really hammering for, uh, the uh, point home that MJ's been through a very traumatic moment, yeah. and it, it's a lot of the focus is on her dealing with that and Peter being the support. It here it feels very different, where it's it's kind of MJ more worried about him right yeah and that's definitely a focus uh between the different writers for sure that that comes out for sure um i'm trying to remember i you know i, I read this and i already found it forgettable <laughs> <laughs> so this is the issue where um the big yes. group of villains come together uh we see them together for the first time and and to just de to decide that they're going to send paste pot pete of all people after after Spider-Man, and he thinks that he's killed him um, at the very beginning of this issue. Mm -hmm. um, but then we have uh, an, an accident and a lab. Um, Peter gets in the way those. of some sort of... Yeah, <laughs> this is how, how all superheroes are made. And I should point out, this, technically, this is the trapster, not Pacepot Pete. He had gone through his name change. Oh, okay, right. Um, Which Trapster just sounds much better. That's right. Oh, yeah, and they even make fun of that, the fact that he's changed his name. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so Spider-Man, um, there's a some sort of explosion or um, in this lab that Peter's working at. Peter gets in the way of the beam to save this old guy, and um, right away he starts feeling different. His spider sense is way more intense than usual. Uh, he can hear water dripping from across this, from like two blocks away and, and that kind of thing. Um, so this is obviously the beginning of the cosmic powers coming out. He also um, sprays his web and it forms a giant hand, mm -hmm. uh, which he's never been able to do that, and he shoots laser beams out of his fingers. So all of a sudden we're um, faced with a completely new Spider-Man. And um, this is the reason why you need to have this issue in this collection. Because yeah. it's the beginning of... of the cosmic spider-man if they had just done this in a recap that wouldn't have sufficed do you think it's interesting like kind of strange or maybe they just had no idea how important or how memorable the kind of the cosmic spidey would end up being that they would put such a big event in a side book not a side book but like not the a title it's the it's the b title it's the b spider-man title there's nothing wrong with that it's just it is the b title and yet such a big event that really informs how spider-man is going to be written for the next few months right happens it not on screen in the big one well and i don't know maybe uh this is something that we can ask either michelini or conway um whose idea was cosmic spider-man because if it was conway's idea then it makes sense to be to start in this book true well he didn't get to end the story either Right? Oh, like did this, it end like, in Amazing? It ended in Amazing. That's when you kind of found out like what the cosmic power oh, was. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yep. So that's, that's why I'm kind of I'm intrigued by having it start in one book, end in another. And where it ended, it felt like they ended in a place that if you look at how he got the cosmic power, wait, are we reading the same story? Because like, yeah. it, it really does seem like a standfall. Your run-of-the-mill Marvel Universe uh, lab accident, uh, but then when you read uh, Amazing later, it's part of some kind of more cosmic plan. Right. So how well planned out was this? But, I mean, it, it must have been, because all of these, this is when some of these titles started going, were they all bi-monthly at this point? Um, That's a good question. Yeah, they were. All three of the titles were bi-monthly. And, uh, oh no, maybe just Web of Spider-Man was. No, Amazing was mid-December -Dece as well. 
Um, so like this, all of these issues, they all happened in two months. Okay. So it must have. So there had to be a little bit more. There had to be more planning in order to be able to put this together. Yeah. So I think that they knew the ending before they started. uh, Before they started the story. Okay. But yeah, that'd be interesting to find out. Uh, Maybe if any of you listeners out there know the answer, you can let us know. Um, Yeah, drop us an email at epicmarvelpodcast at gmail dot com and let us know that. But uh, let's move on. Okay. Web of Spider-Man number 59 is called With Great Power. And I wonder how many issues of Spider-Man are actually titled that. <laughs> Probably. Well, I have a question. I have a question for you. Um, so we're, obviously we're getting treated to different artists here that were on the other Spider-Man books at the time. What, what is your take on Saviak as a, as a Spider-Man penciler? Are you a fan? or? Yeah, I actually am. I, I, I like him. When I was growing up, I liked him a lot more than Buscema. I found okay. I found his uh, I found his uh, work to be quite dynamic. He he's a really good storyteller. He has great uh, backgrounds and and I he kind of defined what Peter Parker looks like for me. Okay, because you know every every artist kind of puts their own stamp on it. McFarlane McFarlane's Peter Parker doesn't look like Peter Parker in my opinion. It, but um, Saviak really, yeah, I like him a lot. How about you? Uh, I've really come to appreciate him a lot. Um, I, I think you're right. Very clear storytelling. And what I think is interesting is that it's his artwork. It's it's he's one of those artists where it managed to be dynamic and feeling kind of timeless at the same time. Like right. it, it, it it has that kind of classic sensibility, yeah. but also doesn't feel dated. Yeah, that's a good way which, to put it. It's it's uh, yeah, he's he's really great. I I think he's one of the best from like, this period from this era. I mean, there's parts here when he's illustrating Spider-Man that I'm like, you know what? If I picked this up in a comic tomorrow, I'd be okay with it. Like, I, I wouldn't feel like, oh, this looks horribly dated. Obviously, it'd probably have different colors and slightly right. different inks. But uh, yeah, if they were to recolor it, I think it would stand out. Yeah, I think it could still work on, on you know, a book today. Well, and I think a lot of it is that he, he feels very kind of Romita-ish. I would agree with that completely. Yeah, um, I think he probably borrows a lot from from Romita. Probably studied a lot of of his work when he was doing this. So there's a and then yeah, because you don't get that with Sal. Sal Buscema doesn't feel like that at all. No, so, I mean Buscema has his own his own style. I mean, generally speaking, if you, depending on the anchor, as we've just discovered, usually you can tell it's Buscema. Yeah. Like and it's very like unmistakable, and it's it's what's his style? It's Busema style, <laughs> right? <laughs> so this issue right here is um, Spider-Man fights um, what's her name? Titana. Is it Titana uh, Titan- or Titania? Titania, yeah, I guess Titania. Um, Titania is a, a character that first appeared in the Secret Wars. Um, Doctor mm-hmm. Doom created her in the Secret Wars, and so that's why Doctor Doom's kind of here with her now um but uh so here here's the thing about spider-man is that a lot of his villains are just like they're the in the terms of the the grand scheme of the marvel universe his villains are pretty low down on the the power list um because spider-man is not the most powerful guy not the most powerful hero so he's got like the rhino and the vulture and the scorpion um so if the villains really are trading 
each other's villains with um, with the heroes here. Um, Spider-Man's going to be facing a lot more powerful bad guys. Like Spider-Man's yeah. not going to he's not going to go up against regularly go up against villains that the Fantastic Four or the X-Men fight because they're just better equipped to take on more powerful people. So I think that was one of the reasons to give Spider-Man extra powers so that he could go toe-to-toe with bigger threats. I guess so, but it's interesting. Like I, That works in the case of Graviton. It works in the case of Magneto. Titania, sorry, Titania is not really that far above his weight class. I mean, she's kind of a She-Hulk level in terms of uh, you know strength, etc., who he could take. Like he has the strength to kind of you know hang out with those people, um, and it might be a you know much more of an even battle. But I don't think Titania as a character is someone who's really that far outside of his league. And the same thing for Goliath. Well, I think that they they uh, I don't know they throw a mean punch. I think there there's definitely more power to them than, and I think doesn't Titania get some upgrades in this issue as well, so that she is more powerful. I mean, yeah, I think so. That's and that's why we see him. He's going to battle the Hulk later, and um, and, and take on some some robots and stuff like that. Because I think that's um, <laughs> he he get he's outclassed if the villains from from other books start coming into this book here. Mm-hmm. So I guess I just felt that I bought that idea of being outclassed more when Michelinie was writing his stories. I think when it was Conway's stories, I didn't quite, I didn't feel that he necessarily needed the upgrades or the extra powers in order to hang with these particular villains. It was maybe a closer fight than some of the ones we're used to seeing because he kind of has a lot more power than a lot of his rogues gallery. But I didn't think it was as you know, I don't think I just didn't think he was as outclassed. And maybe right. it's just because in Conway context the 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 supreme power level of the guys who's up against it amazing is just such huge um drastic difference i think one of the things to remember is that when spider-man first met titania in secret wars he was wearing the, the alien costume okay which gave him extra strength and they made it pretty clear there that he wouldn't have been able to take on titania if it weren't for the for the alien symbiote okay and um and so and because of that, because he got so, because she got so um, badly beaten by Spider-Man, she has this like fear of Spider-Man because she believes mm-hmm. him to be so powerful. So, to now he's they're revisiting that, but he's got extra powers. So I think that's uh, that's important to note here. Um, oh, there is this one guy, um, a photographer, Katzenberg. Nick Katzenberg, yeah. Nick Katzenberg, who seems to be in... Uh, he's a an, a reoccurring character here, and he's bent on trying to smear Spider-Man. He, he's basically taking over the J. Jonah Jameson role um, because Jonah's not there anymore, but they kind of have to have that perspective of, of the public eye still throughout mm-hmm. these books. So he's oh, kinda, absolutely. He's kind of a running theme throughout, throughout this volume. Okay, next is Amazing Spider-Man number 327. It's called Cutting Attractions, <laughs> and this issue is another issue that I, one of the very first issues that I ever read. Interesting. And okay. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Um, and I had no idea who Eric Larson was back then. Well, not, I, not a lot of people probably knew who he was back then either, because um, he was just kind of starting out. But it was just a fantastic issue when I was a kid. And looking back on it, um, it's still one of the better chapters of the Cosmic Adventures. 
Interesting. Okay. Now, why do you why do you feel that way? Um, I feel that way because it has a good balance of Peter's home life with Mary Jane and with Flat. There's a great Flash Thompson scene in here. Um, the the villain is just a larger than life villain who's really great and and um, and Eric Larson's art is fantastic in this book. I and who I was going to mention the inker. Who's the inker here? Um, it is it's, uh, Al Gordon. Al Gordon and I I'm not familiar with Al Gordon, but he really does a great job inking Eric Larson. I like him far better than the the inker that Eric Larson has for the rest of this volume. Um, who I'm going to pull that up now as well. That is uh, Andy Mashinsky. Mashinsky. <laughs> Andy Mashinsky. Yeah. Um, he just uh, this Al Gordon just adds a lot of uh, roundness and weight to to the characters. His backgrounds are fantastic. His uh, all of his um, motion lines and, and uh, effects that he adds in here are just are just great. I, I found the art here to be to feel like again that Larson was trying to be a little bit more McFarlane and less Larson because McFarlane wasn't off the book yet. Right, um, that's possible, and he was trying out for the position. This is kind of his tryout issue for yeah. For the book, I mean, right? you could definitely see certain hallmarks of the kind of the Larson style. Like, um, I think the the first shot we see of MJ. Uh, on the left-hand side of the page, yep. definitely kind of has that kind of trademark Larson look. Uh, and then when Spider-Man is kind of taking off his mask when he's upside down, definitely kind of has that youthful energy that he usually gave his Peter. Yep. Um, although it's not consistent uh, throughout those few pages, but on that one that one page or sort of one panel, it really nails it. Like that's his Peter. Yeah. Um, there is, you know, you could definitely see it's growing pains from a younger artist. Um, one thing he talked about on my uh, show was the fact that he didn't really know how to do the kingpin. And you can kind of <laughs> see that with the first shot of the kingpin here where it's just a giant blob with a little head on top. Yeah, should we play um, that clip? Yeah. Sure, yeah, let's play that clip. First time I drew him, I just kind of drew him as a ball with a head on, <laughs> on him. And, you know, because it was just... And Kevich had drawn him in some Daredevil graphic novel. And I was like, oh, he's drawing him as a huge fat ball. I'm going to make him like a huge fat ball. And then the second time I was I was kind of looking more at uh, how Ramita had initially drawn him and just like, oh, no, he's supposed to be like this really kind of a burly guy, like a big wrestler of a guy. You know, he's got a big belly, sure, but he's also got big, powerful hands and, and a you know, huge shoulders and stuff like that. And he, he should look like he's a formidable kind of guy. That kingpin is actually, I love that kingpin. I think really? it's so funny. It is hilarious. And it's, a, I guess, I know it's I ridiculous. Don't think, I don't think of kingpin being like kind of no, a funny, funny look. Not at all. <laughs> it's, and it's, and it's out of place and it doesn't fit, but I think it's, I think it's hilarious. I also feel like Larson struggles a little with uh, Magneto's helmet, like which is a hard design to do. And you're, you know, you have this guy wearing this helmet, and you know, how, which angles do you take him from? And I think at times he kind of struggles with it. Um, one thing yeah. I really, I had completely forgotten about it, and it almost seems weird that they never actually address it in story. Is Flash Thompson is in love with a new girl every issue, right? And but they never 
call him on it. They never say anything. Like it almost felt like this weird joke that's actually not a joke at all. Like they're playing it so straight. And if you were just reading this month after month, you first of all you'd forget his girlfriend from the month before, and you'd, it'd be totally lost on you. But it just felt like this odd thing that like Michelani is trying to make fun of Flash Thompson, but he's not even doing a good job of sticking the joke because. Because unless you're reading all the issues in succession, you're not even going to notice. And again, no one talks about it. Well, and I think that's kind of true to real life. Because at this point, Flash and Peter are friends. And if your friend was dating a new person every other week, you it would be like how how do you balance that with your with your friendship? Would you would you actually confront them about it, or yeah, maybe some ribbing or something? That's um, the thing. Like, if friends don't have to confront. They can also be like, "Man, another one already!" Like, <laughs> yeah, like you know, a lot or is something, or even a line between Peter and MJ afterwards being like, "Another one!" Like, you know, like we, right. we are privy to them having you know relationship conversations. Want to have one like that? Just the one line of dialogue. It just felt like this odd choice to obviously be making a point that you know he's a guy kind of floundering going from girl to girl trying to and then each one deciding that because she's kind of the love of his life but not really knowing what that means but to not actually draw any attention to it just felt like a a, an odd missed moment yeah it is odd and i think that they're trying to figure out what to do with flash thompson at this point because now that they're not in school together what's his purpose so Mm -hmm. he has this one side where he's like looking for love in all the wrong places but then in another issue he's like teaching young kids how to box in a non-profit organization it's like what what kind of person are we talking about here and uh the the next page we have one of the most like weird magneto moments i've ever read he he shows up i guess in central park this one guy makes fun of him because he's like it's not halloween so the guy basically almost like cripples his neck or like his head (laughs) like he grabs his mic his headphones and like starts to crush this guy's skull for no reason and he all he says is a typical urban bore one easily disposed of by the master of magnetic force seriously (laughs) who is this guy yep yep I've never read a Magneto like this before. Like the Magneto who on the Fantastic Four cartoon in the 60s got foiled by um, a wood gun, finds out it's a wood gun, and then still doesn't break free, is smarter than this guy. So maybe that's just Michelinie's inexperience with the character. I guess so. It just it, It's one of those things that sticks out as yeah. kind of being this odd moment. Like Magneto le- legitimately just kind of sits down in the middle of, of this park and is like watching a portable television. Seriously? Yeah. Totally. <laughs> I admit there's some good stuff here, like Spider-Man trying to test out his powers, and he's get, he's scared of his powers because how did he get these? That's all cool. That's really good character moments. Um, it's and even seeing MJ getting a role on a on a, a soap opera, I really like that because she's not like a supermodel. She's a model who can't get work anymore, and now is working in soap operas. Right. Seems believable. Like that, I really love all that character stuff. It's just. I feel like when you add in Magneto, it just it gets a little awkward. That being said, the fight sequences are good. Yeah. The action is entertaining. It just do I do I buy all of it? Maybe not. And Magneto <laughs> just kind of decides to take off. He's like, oh, well, he's doing all he's manifesting all these extra powers. I guess he's not just a new mutant with basically a secondary mutation. Like he knows Spider-Man has powers. Now he sees another power and he thinks, oh, maybe now he's a mutant. I'm going to go check this out. It's kind of a flimsy way of building Magneto into the story, but they had to use something. Yeah. One of my favorite moments is uh, when Spider-Man bats the car with his giant webbing baseball bat into the middle of the ocean 
thinking that he's uh, he's he's got it out of harm's way, but then it actually hits a cruise ship. Like that is the uh, yeah, that's that's the effect that he he has inexperience with this type of strength. Absolutely, and that's a great character beat. However, yeah. one thing I found really didn't work for me was right afterwards when Spider-Man saves them, and then they're like, yeah, but you're forgetting he's the one who almost got us killed. How do they know that? He knocked <laughs> it, like, yeah. so far. Like, no one knows. Like, are you really going to think it's Spider-Man who did it or the guy who's throwing metal around? <laughs> right, right. Like, it was just one of those things. I'm like, really? Like, come on. Well, and that's part of writing comic books in the 80s, I think. It's just, uh, you don't think about all those things as much. I guess. I mean, I know everyone has to hate Spider-Man. That's the trope. But it just felt like, I get it. Like, that that just seems a little silly. Or at yeah. least have them be closer. Like, I feel like he wanted us to show how immeasurably powerful Spider-Man was now by having something so, you know, accidental and knocking someone so this car so far away. That's a great idea. But then to also tie it in with the idea that, you know, these people think that, you know, th- th- he's not such a hero because he's also the reason they're in that predicament. I feel like you go with one of them, you can't use both. Right. Sorry, that was my diatribe. Nope, that's okay. Let's move on to Spectacular Spider-Man number 159. The Brothers Grimm. Yeah. This is um, possibly my least favorite issue in the entire book. Okay, why is that? Um, I just didn't like these villains. They are completely forgettable. They are, and I gotta say, I'm not a huge fan of Esposito's finishes on Busema. Yeah, that was the other thing, and that's part of what made this one so not not good as well. Yeah, it's a uh, it doesn't even have the Busema flair that he adds. Like that's just taken away from this. Yeah, if well, I mean, a, a part of it's that when you look at the you know the art, it doesn't say inks; it says finishes, right? Like, right. which is a lot more than just your inking job. Like, Busema is doing the breakdowns, but it's not like he's doing maybe full pencils, right? So, well, and that's because this was bi-monthly, right? It's, exactly. Uh, so, um, Busema is trying to do two issues in one month, so he does one full one and plots out the the other one and gives it over to Mike Esposito to finish it up. I mean, there are there's shots here where I feel like um, the pencils were a little bit tighter, especially there's some uh, panels with uh, Peter and Jameson where I'm like, okay, well, this looks a lot more like Buscema. And, uh, and there's a shot where um, Peter, it looks like he's having a like, massive spider sense attack. That looks like a very classic Buscema Peter. Yeah. Um, so, like, there's some shots here, but then some of the Spider-Man swinging shots, yeah, it just, just doesn't quite look right. Nope. And, and I think part of it's also the colors. The colors are a super light kind of weird palette. Like this isn't nighttime. This is like bright in the day. And it almost looks too bright and light. And it, it kind of, uh, especially when you have a guy like Busema, he works really well with the darker colors. Um, so I, I feel like that doesn't help a lot. Well, and the palette is, a, um, it actually is quite similar to the previous issue, Spider-Man issue we had. But um, the difference is that uh, there's more shadows at play in Lar- in the Larson issue that we just read. Absolutely, you're right because there's there's more texture going on, so you don't notice it as the same. It's yeah. not as 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 patently obvious that it's just this kind of awkward yellow color because you because you had shots of. Um, when Larson had Spider-Man swinging, you had, it was just the kind of yellow, but then you had these weird like, motion lines running throughout it. Right. So it really made it look so much more dynamic, whereas yep. it was kind of lacking here. Uh, plus, this is a really bad Doctor Doom. <laughs> it's a terrible Doctor Doom. But then, you know, um, Sal Buscema's Doctor Doom in the previous Spectacular one wasn't very good either. 
Um, I think it was still better than this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably. Well, I don't think we need to dwell on this issue. Oh, there's nope. two there's two things actually that we won't see that that are in this issue that we'd never see in other issues. The first one is the World Trade Center. Um, that's right. Yeah. In, there's a big splash page with Spider-Man flying upside down with that in the background. That's always kind of nice to see in these old issues. Um, mm -hmm. The other one is uh, cigar smoking. Um, that's right. Yeah. Marvel has a no no cigarettes, no cigar policy now. So we never see we never see Jonah smoking a cigar anymore. Um, so the fact that he he get that he offers one to Peter Parker like that's just uh it's just unheard of nowadays no absolutely i forgot about that yeah that's it's one of those those touches of reading these older comics when you have characters like you know thing wolverine and nick fury all lighting up their stogies yep. and it, you you kind of miss it like or even it, like it just mr fantastic with his pipe <laughs> especially mr fantastic yep. with his pipe you don't see that stuff anymore this this is all yours. I know this is the one you can't wait to talk about. <laughs> okay, yeah, Web of Spider Man number sixty. Um, this it's still I still love it, and uh, maybe we were talking earlier about why Alex Saviuk was is one of my or not one of my favorites, but why I like his artwork, and I think it's primarily this issue. Um, there are some really cool things at play in this issue with with his in regards to his art, and mostly to do with Goliath. Um, I love the scenes. Anytime he's huge, it just looks great. You really get the sense of of, uh, of how big he is. You get some really great angles, um, especially the scene where he's coming out of the ground um, and Kingpin drives away in his limo. And a huge <laughs> hand just comes out and he's lifting up that fairy. Um, really cool. Yeah, like he, I, I have to say, like of the two issues here that Savick drew, it's definitely the stronger one. Not even, it's not even a question. Like his art is so on point here, and I don't know if it's maybe the um, the inks by Williams um, when he's doing the Goliath, or even just the the colors by Sharon. Um, the, that the, the figure of Goliath pops in a way that he doesn't usually pop. And if you look at it too, that is a really hideous color costume. It is. Well, but Goliath has always had hideous costumes until he, be, he until he joins the Thunderbolts. And even then, yeah, that, well, that one's not that great either. Yeah, it's not necessarily the greatest, but like, yeah, there's just something about it. It really works. Um, I'm not a fan of the, the color usually, but it pops in this issue, and I have to give credit to Bob Sharon for the, the colors there. And it's also just a nice juxtaposition because you have, you know, a character in blue and red, and then you also have a character in, I guess, orange and something else. And uh, I guess orange and brown, right? Yeah. Forgive me, I'm colorblind, so I'm having a little bit more difficulty. But um, yeah. even as someone who's colorblind, like it really captures your attention on the page because well, you does. have these these characters with very different color palettes. Yeah, well, in the color palettes for the backgrounds, even like they don't just don't use orange. Orange and brown are no. not there. It's all greens and blues and purples, and so mm -hmm. you get uh, yeah, he does really stand out, and that's a good point. And Doom looks better, and, and Kingpin looks better. Yep. Like everyone kind of looks better. And now, actually, this is something I don't think I remember seeing. So this is the first real appearance of seeing the Captain Universe power above Spider-Man. That's right. So you you do see it here. So I guess they they did plot it out and they knew what they were doing. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and we get a real sense of how. I like the way that they've kind of um, been unfolding spider-man's powers his new powers in these issues he kind of displays a new one each time yeah and then this one we really get a sense of how incredibly powerful he is 
to the point where he nearly kills Goliath and realizes that he needs to rein it rein it back. For sure. And, and I actually I have to give credit to Michelin because I think that's something that uh, Spider-Man ends up being, you know, kind of struggling with the next time we see him is the idea that, you know, he can do things now and he is dangerous. Yeah. Okay. Um, Amazing Spider-Man number two, no, sorry, number uh, 328. This, this is, is such a famous cover. Yeah, it really is. And it's great. This is the last McFarlane issue, right? Yes, it is. And it's interesting enough, they, they knew it. Um, I always wondered that, like, did they know he, when he was going to be leaving? And um, apparently he, they knew he was going to be leaving the book. Uh, and they kind of asked him what he wanted to draw. And he said, I want to draw, you know, I like the Hulk. And he had done Hulk with Peter David. So they gave him a Hulk issue. And that was kind of his goodbye uh, from Amazing. And then I think about six, seven months later, he debuted uh, the Ejectiveless Spider-Man, which was obviously a huge smash at the time. Right. Cool. And this issue looks great. It sure does. And this is still McFarlane sort of early in his career. For sure. And uh, now I guess in the intervening time, he was just kind of prepping and putting together his Spider-Man book. So we didn't really kind of see him around. It's kind of weird to think that this guy was such a huge splash on Spider-Man for like two and a half years. And then there's just this hiatus back in a day when you were, you know, there wasn't the fan press that there is now. Yeah. So it would have been like, where the hell did he go? Yeah, and and then suddenly you go to the complex store and or the you go to the spinner rack and suddenly well you may not find it on the spinner rack Spider Man number one I don't know if you I guess they they put it out there because there was millions of copies but. yeah I'm sure it was so in this issue it's kind of weird because um, the Hulk is not really a villain but he goes up against him he kind of gets coerced by Sebastian Shaw who's an X Men villain. I gotta actually flag flag you there. Uh, there is no coercion. He said, "Hey, you want money?" And he said, "Okay." <laughs> true. That's true. <laughs> it was a pretty easy sell. He's basically like, "Hey, you want money? Lots of it. Talk to me." Like, this is this is Joe Fix It. This isn't uh, this isn't your standard Hulk. This is the Gray Hulk. He was working in Vegas for a while. Like, I can't remember if this is after Vegas, but he was still Joe Fix It at the time. But it, it's a very specific version of the Hulk. Uh, it's back when um, he once again at uh, daytime turns into Banner, nighttime turns into the Hulk. So again, a very specific iteration. Yeah. Uh, but, but kind of the perfect one to have in a storyline like this. Yeah, it worked really well. And he's um, a great... Now that we know how powerful Cosmic Spider-Man is, he's a great foil for, for Peter to, to be able to unleash and not really have to worry about hurting him although it's funny that they they pit the most spider most powerful spider-man ever against one of the weaker versions of the hulk right. <laughs> like we're not even getting like a rampaging green hulk to really show us the upper limits of his power we're actually getting one of the tamest versions of the hulk yeah i kind of think they don't care about that when they're writing this because spider-man still punches them out of orbit <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. And this is technically, um, you know, it's a not not kind. He's he's definitely a little bit more of a, a dick version of the Hulk. Yeah. Usually the Hulk's very childlike. This is a Hulk who knows who he is, and he's a bit of an asshole. Okay, we can move on to uh, Spectacular Spider-Man number 160. This is one of the more awkward moments that remind you that it's from 1989, when you have Spider-Man uh, taking out these, these terrorists uh, on the Statue of Liberty, and then when he's about to take out the last one, he's like, what are you? And he's like, I'm Bat. And then he's like, I'm Spider-Man. Like, 
it's obviously, you know, they uh, Michelani had, or I don't know if this came from uh, Michelani seeing the, you know, what McFarlane had drawn or what came first, but it's definitely a, a dig at 1989's Batman, yeah. where you have the, you know, the beginning of the movie, you have him saying, you know, I'm Batman. Uh, it's kind of an odd moment to have and really kind of takes you out for a moment. You're like, what? Oh, yeah, it's 1989. Of course they made that reference. Yeah. I do love that Spider-Man just punches the Hulk into space. And it's a good thing Spider-Man can fly into orbit because otherwise the Hulk is dead. <laughs> yeah, because he's going to change back to Bruce Banner. All right, spectacular Spider-Man. Yep, let's do it. Um, okay, so here's where things kind of take a turn. Now, and I find this an interesting shift because now that we know that Spider-Man is so powerful, he now only goes up against robots. Mm. He So there's really no danger they can the writers have the freedom to let spider-man unleash and he's not gonna hurt anybody so he battles a robot in this one and uh, dragon man who's an android in the next one and then the, the tri-sentinel in the in the last one yeah uh it's, it's unfortunate that um see, the tri-sentinel was the only one i actually kind of found more engaging as a threat because yeah. this threat here if you can even call it that like it, <sighs> yeah. it just it's it, it it felt like they weren't quite taking it as seriously as as they wanted to, and the reader is supposed to maybe take it seriously. But again, I don't feel as a reader we really worry for Spider-Man here. Like it's very clear that Spider-Man's going to win in a way that it's even though he has all these powers, it wasn't as black and white in the other issues we'd had. Right. Um, yeah. That being said, we have full classic Busema art here. We do, and it looks good, um, and. Uh... We get a few cameos from like um, Hydro Man, mm -hmm. um, the Rhino, and uh, he, here in this one, Doctor Doom, he's he's trying to steal Spider-Man's cosmic power by using this machine that I guess was around when Captain America was first created to try and take away the um, take away his super soldier mm -hmm. powers or whatever. Um, this is, I didn't realize that Dr. Doom was still, like, this was still his thing, even in the late <laughs> 80s, was, I'm gonna get all the power, like, that classic issue where he gets the Silver Surfer's cosmic powers. Yeah. Well, I guess it's still his thing when it's not, you know, kind of, uh, the regular FF writers I guess writing so. him, like, right. you know, like, it's a, it's a classic trope that you can go back to if you need to, that Doom is power-hungry and trying to get, you know, whenever he sees a, you know, an entity of any type of cosmic power, he must have it for himself. And he's, he's done it time and time again. You're right, though, the one we always think of is from the 60s as uh, being a very kind of Silver Age moment. So far, all of the spectacular Spider-Man issues have been kind of disappointing. Um, I know that that run was really great when it started, that series, but then by this point... I find it kind of a little bit lackluster. Uh, I think, yeah, here it's not so great. I mean, there's some really great things that uh, Conway did on Spectacular. Yeah, like the Tombstone storyline I really enjoyed. Exactly. Like, I just feel like these aren't the issues. But again, this is part of a bigger event, um, you know, and it's being published really quickly. So I think we can, you know, give them a little bit of slack for that. And it's only three issues, yeah, out of all of them. I mean, I would like to see what comes before this and what comes after this in terms of Spider-Man. I'm especially mm -hmm. intrigued by the uh, the Robbie, the Joe Robertson storyline that's going on here where he's kind of on trial um, because he was in jail with the Tombstone, like the follow from the Tombstone stuff. Yeah, it, it only gets weirder. Yeah. 
well, it does get weirder. Like there's an issue with uh, uh, I remember seeing this issue everywhere. It was like Banjo is his name or something. Like there's this weird villain that looks like seriously deformed. Like uh, and I think Robbie's on the run. Like it's it's some weird stuff. And then after that, after Conway was done. I believe that's when you have Demetrius coming on doing um, the Child Within, which is one of my favorite Spider-Man stories. Like it's so good, and it's also kind of uh, the the beginning of his Harry Osborn saga, which would eventually kill off the character in two hundred. Right. Um, so really good stuff comes up not long after this. Well, let's keep on moving on here. Uh, Web Spider-Man number sixty-one, where he fights uh, Dragon Man. I hate this version of Dragon Man that he's like a this weird dog that they they put the scent of Spider Man and he just goes out to go fight him. I'm like, really? Come on. Well, that's yeah, that's kind of how the character. Oh yeah, with the scent, yeah, that is kind of weird. But the character was pretty mindless. Usually. Oh, absolutely. I just found like that was a weird direction to to kind of go in. Yeah, he's a robot. You program, he'll do things. Yeah. I don't think you had to have this weird kind of thing of making him like kind of like being a dog and training him that way. Right. Just was an odd move to go with. One thing I did think was interesting here um, that we didn't see in any of the other issues that we've had by Conway so far, but definitely was a part of his run, is um, I forget if she's the niece or not. but Oh yeah, the yeah, I guess, Jane's niece. Or it's her cousin. It's her cousin, I think, right? Because she calls her cousin. Oh yeah, cousin. Yep, you're right. But like that was a big part of like Conway's run. But it's just interesting because I remember that as being a character who was always kind of around, not a character I loved. And then in these issues, like the character is not present at all, which I I found kind of surprising. So then when I got to this point in my reading, I'm like, oh yeah, there she is. Totally forgot about Christie. Right. And she's never been remembered ever since. Yeah, and it's only the two pages here. That's it. And that's one of the reasons why this collection is a little on the odd side because it has these side stories that that don't get revisited because these are the other the other titles. Well, exactly. Well, and especially like at the end of that issue, you have this, you know, kind of epilogue where someone is harassing um, or tell, uh, trying to get in contact with Liz Osborne. And now if you know anything about the character, you know who that is. Right. But if you don't, you're like, who is this masked man? Because you're never going to see it. It's never, not ever. Here. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, let's keep on plowing ahead unless you have anything else to add to this one here. Nope, definitely not. So let's talk oh. about Eric Larson's big uh, big debut. So this is interesting. With Amazing Spider-Man 329, it's the Axe of Vengeance aftermath. So I didn't know Axe of Vengeance was over. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. This is where having one page just kind of saying what happened as a recap might not have been out of line. Uh, it's not a big deal, but um, that kind of storyline is over. But we're going to continue with uh, Sebastian Shaw. And now Eric Larson is our regular penciler on Amazing Spider-Man, although they don't actually introduce him as such. So maybe they hadn't actually made that decision yet. Because I know that in 351, when Mark Bagley comes on, it's very clear welcoming, you know, new penciler Mark Bagley. Right. Um, so here, there's no kind of formal announcement that this is going to be the, the new character. Or a new artist, I should say. Yeah. It, it, this is a, this was a, an interesting issue. Cause, um, so this is where we find out all about why he has these powers. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that, I guess... The uh, what what does he call it? The Captain Universe, the uh, Enigma Force, which is give, the, yeah the Uni Power. Yeah, it gives um it it bestows these powers on somebody when it senses a big threat is coming. So, the the Enigma Force and Captain Universe knew 
that this Acts of Vengeance was going to be a bust, and he they, then he knew that flippantly Loki was going to create a Tri-Sentinel, and this was the threat to the world? Like, that seems a yep. little kind of strange there. Well, especially because the Tri-Sentinel doesn't seem like that big a deal. Yeah, well, exactly. It's like, send the X-Men, they deal with this kind of stuff all the time. Yeah, or just send Magneto against it, like... Yeah, yeah, it, and yeah. Why or does Graviton, have to? the guys Spider Man's already fought. Like, it was kind of a disappointing end to the story here. That being said, I do. I mean, as much as I think Larson had kind of downplayed the design because he's like, "Oh, I didn't really do anything. I just made a Captain Universe with a Spider Man mask." It doesn't matter. That costume is used everywhere. It's pretty cool. Yep, it's awesome. Like it's been in like every Spider-Man video game. Like it's always an alternate skin. Like yep. it, it may have. It, he's right. It's not that dynamic because it's really just Captain Universe with a Spider-Man half mask. But it really captured people's attention, and I think that's part of why people remember these issues. They remember it for Spider-Man uh, punching Hulk into orbit, and they remember you know the, that one shot where Spider-Man finally accesses the Captain Universe powers yeah. and has that costume. Totally. That's what people remember more than anything else. Yep, yep. Uh, it's uh, and that uh, and then the nostalgia plays in with there as well. Absolutely. You know what people don't remember? They don't remember this weird panel in the middle of this issue where you have this giant black guy with a giant fade being like, <laughs> "Give me money, I'm hungry," and then being thrown into the air by Spider-Man and then hung up inside of the police just by saying, "I'm a bad boy." Really? Like that's just so awkward. Like. Yeah, what? it's pretty weird. It's very strange. And like, I guess he has a gun, but if you look at the gun, it's like the most—it's the smallest gun possible. So I didn't even realize this guy was even holding a gun. But you know what this is? Is this is Eric Larson's sense of humor? You see this? Mm. This is him. This is Savage Dragon humor. Right? True. And um, from what I understand, is uh, you know, Michelini would give him the plots, but Eric Larson kind of got to do what he wanted to do in these issues plotting it out himself page by page so yeah this actually kind of it seems out of place here but if you think that this is eric larson this is what savage dragon is then yeah it's that makes sense <laughs> well then i'm almost surprised because it then i mean it sometimes seems that there's a bit of a dissonance sometimes between the writing and the art in this time yeah but here then it would seem to indicate that they were really on the same page because the dialogue really kind of matches that tone then i mean even the fact that once this guy is hung up outside the police he's saying i am time for lunch like that's definitely a gag that's being played yeah and uh it's interesting to kind of have both participants you know being part of it knowing that they didn't necessarily talk about any of the issues it was just really here's the plot you give me the pencils and then i will you know script the story it's just <laughs> interesting that they end up on the same uh page on that on yeah. something that's very easy to get wrong right so moving on. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, do we want to mention that Graviton shows up briefly in this issue as well? I don't want to mention it because it's really depressing. Oh, okay, fine. We won't. You can read it for yourself. <laughs> um, well, can I mention one thing? One last thing about this issue? Yep. Uh, now we have Black Cat being introduced as the new girl from, from Flash Thompson. Yep. So now it feels like we're starting to get a payoff. So we have all these girls that Flash is saying, she's the one, she's the one, she's the one. And now we have this new one who is very familiar to Peter and MJ and definitely ratchets up that soap opera component. Yeah. And I think that really works. And it just makes you think they, um, they had that idea 
Michelini was thinking this the whole time, and it was just kind of a slow build in the background in these weird scenes in the past few issues to bring it to For this sure. point here. Uh, last two thoughts on this issue as well. We have uh, Peter Parker wearing a Charlie Brown shirt. <laughs> yep. And the second is, this is something Arthur Larson talked about on my show, is that uh, we now have Flash Thompson once again having curly hair, which is something that he definitely uh, did on purpose. Okay. See if we can find a clip of that, too. Flash Thompson, over the years, had gone from having curly hair to kind of having the, the Steve Rogers comb-over that kind of every character had, where they just parted it on the side and brushed it over. And it was like, well... Let me give him that curly hair that he used to have, because that was something as a as a visual tick that that made him different from all these other characters. There weren't that many characters that had curly hair at that point. All right, let's just move on. Now we have a we have a Punisher story now. I've gotten conflicting reports on whether or not this was intentional because um, I, Larson seems to think that because he'd already done some issues of uh, Punisher, it was kind of a natural fit to throw Punisher into the Spider-Man story because he had a background illustrating the character. Yep. Uh, but I've also heard elsewhere that it actually was just kind of an accident. Uh, so either way, uh, it's kind of nice to see you know, this type of character being drawn because the last few issues Larson has been able to do you know big crazy stuff with Magneto and then with a big tri-sentinel and now we have him doing something a little bit more grounded with Punisher although his Punisher is huge yeah he is but that's uh I feel like that's an Eric Larson ism as well for sure. Uh, and I, I don't know how much detail we want to go in. 331, we have a, a black cat versus a Mary Jane kind of moment, which really strikes me in an odd way because my first kind of interaction with uh, black cat uh, as a kind of a regular reader was kind of around the clone saga. And at that time, Felicia and Mary Jane were actually more confident. Or sorry, confidants. Uh, they would talk to each other. They were actually friends at that point. And even before but I remember reading in Maximum Carnage, you know, Black Hat was an ally of Peter and they were very amicable. Uh, so reading something like this reminds me like, whoa, that was not always the case. They really did not like each other. Right. Yeah. Overall, what were your thoughts on this two-parter? It was, it was to be honest, it was forgettable. The parts that I remembered more more were the parts with the supporting cast. I thought those stood out more. Yeah. Um, it was kind of a, a you know a forgettable yarn with the Punisher, um, but we also I guess got some. I think we got a little bit of Venom kind of being teased that we were going to get him back for the next arc as well. So I thought all that stuff worked a little bit more um, yeah. in terms of the actual kind of main action kind of thorough line. It, it was a little bit standard. It wasn't something that was really going to knock your socks off. It looked good, but um, it wasn't that thrilling or entertaining. Well, and I'm going to say that I don't even think it looked that great. Um, I uh, Here's where my inking issues come in. And I, if you go to, let me see if I can find a good example. Let's say the last uh, page, uh, 256. Okay. And, and you look at the Punisher's face here. Mm. His, sty <laughs> his style of inking What's this guy's name again? Um, oh, Mike Macklin. That's a, this is a different guy than than the other issue I had an issue with, but um, which makes sense because it's a very different style. Yeah, it's a very different style. That's and that, this is the guy who does the the next few issues. Um, I just I don't like his his style of shadows and uh, like his style of cross hatching and yeah, the way he puts the lines on people's faces. It's just it's just ugly. 
I will say that on that last page that you just mentioned, 256, uh, Punisher looks about 80 years old. Well, and he does in several of these. You go to page um, 250 and 251. The two, okay. the two big faces of that Punisher have there too. Mm. Just not great. I. Uh, um, it's a and, bit Silvermanish. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and then go back a couple more to two forty-eight, and if you look at this picture of Spider-Man hanging over the boat, it is just so crowded with um, mm. with lines. Like it just doesn't. It's it doesn't read well. And if this were inked by somebody else, I think it would have been... It's not an issue of staging, because I think it's staged fine. Larson did a fine job um, plotting it, but um, the inking is just too too busy in some places, and especially with like the, the black on the water, and it doesn't read well at all. So. It's interesting. Now that I think about it, do you think the inker was going for a bit of a Buscema look on the face? Um... Because because Buscema's faces kind of have a similar kind of style in, in terms of how he kind of does the cheekbones, um, and right. kind of some of the and the, the lines, the line work the, there. Yeah, the lines that come uh, that wrap around the mouths and stuff like that. Well, after that we get Venom though, so you know that's okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. So yeah, we have another two-parter here, um, issue three thirty-two and three thirty-three. This ends. Um, this is kind of the final two-parter of the amazing content, amazing Spider-Man content in this volume. Then we move on to some annuals. Um, this was uh, another early Venom appearance. I think maybe his third appearance. Uh, I feel like it might be later than that because I mean, I feel like you've already had numerous appearances by now. Oh yeah. I, I, I feel like it. Like I know McFarland did a bunch of them, right? So okay. I feel like we've already had a lot of Venom, but I could be completely wrong. So here is where we start to see the the tongue coming out and it's not as pronounced as uh in that next storyline in the, that'll come up in the next volume but uh yeah larson's putting his stamp on the character it's actually i, I like the story um putting in sticks and stones here as well sticks i hate stone. them i you, you don't like those can't guys? stand them how come no it really took me out like i was just like oh i have to i feel like of all the the kind of the michelini uh venom kind of storylines this is probably my least favorite like yeah. it just I, I just felt like having the other villains in there didn't really work i thought that the, the spider-man venom fight themselves was actually very entertaining but whenever you have these other guys there it just felt awkward now i wonder is um is this the story where he starts to uh where he saves a baby from drowning or is that the next storyline I feel like that's the next one. Okay, then forget about it. Um, yeah, it, it's, it is kind of a throwaway Venom story. He doesn't really do anything spectacular. He kind of just shows up, does his thing, and then goes. Um, you know what, I think, actually, sorry, you're right. This is this is actually the third Venom story. I was wrong. He's been in numerous issues. He was in the first, you know, issue 300, and then he was in issue 315 to 317. Yeah. But then this is the next time after that. So... Uh, I'm, I'm wrong. This is actually still an extremely early Venom story. Yeah, and I think there's still... You can tell because they're still trying to figure out the character. He mm-hmm. He's not quite the... Um, he doesn't have the, the whole thing about innocent people going yet. And uh, um, I, I feel like they're still, they're still playing around with who he is and what he's trying to accomplish. There's some weird stuff in here, though, like Venom uh, pretending to be what a cop and then r- riding a horse towards Spider-Man and then jumping <laughs> yeah. off. And like, and I, uh, thankfully, they show the horse running away, so you know the horse is all right. 
Well, that's good. Like you can see in the background of as Venom is like pile driving the ground, you can see, you know, the ma- um, the tail of the horse. So you, you can assume that no horses were harmed in the creation of this comic. So. Oh, this is the issue where he saves the baby. Oh, it like is. Page There's the baby, yeah. 301. Yeah. So this is the kind of the beginning of him, of, of getting the, the hint that he actually is kind of a good bad guy in that sense. He protects the innocent. Okay. Um, let's, uh, let's move on to the, the annuals that are at the back here. For um, sure. Now, this was kind of a... I found this to be a disappointing way to end the volume. But then you're going to... If you start the volume with this as well, it's kind of disappointing also. So um, there were some good things about this. I actually, um, I actually really liked the Ant-Man storyline. Um, okay. I, I thought it, it was a lot of fun, especially the part where... You know, Spider-Man sh- keeps on shrinking and shrinking um, till he lands. He shrinks so small he's in this universe that's tiny, and he lands on this planet where he's a giant, and then shrinks mm. down even more. He gets, keeps on shrinking, and then we find out that Psycho Man is behind it, and he's kind of trapped in this tiny, tiny, tiny world as well. So there, um, you know, it's the uh, the shrinking Spidey is something that has kind of uh, people have remembered over the years. It's not terribly standout, but I liked it better than a lot of the side stories that came after in these issues. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. What I remember most, the reason why I always remember uh, the storyline, or at least one of the covers or one of the pinups, I can't remember which one, of Spider-Man kind of upside down, kind of with his arms up and being like, you know, that he's in this crazy world. It's because of the, I believe it's the uh, Spider-Man 30th anniversary card series. Yep. And because they had a card of that kind of shot. And so for years before I'd ever read this issue, that's what I remembered. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't live up to the card, I have to be honest. Oh, okay. Um, I'm not a big fan of the annuals, to be honest. Like, I found them extremely forgettable. Like, I read them all in preparation for this, and yep. I already forget them. Like, yeah. They uh, were not very good. No, um, no, they're really not. And there is, like, um, the, the, the most surprising thing is there's a couple of Steve Ditko stories in here, and they are just terrible. Um, the hit- oh yeah, well, I you know what I actually kind of like the Dicko art. Like it's not his best, obviously, but I don't know. It just it has this the sensibility that you don't see anymore. Um, so I kind of dug it, and it was weird to see him doing solo of all characters. Yeah, that was weird. Um, but it, it just um, no, I disagree. It was like he's got bad perspective and bad um, body proportions and. Mm. Um, it just, I did not like it at all. And he does another issue, which is more humorous, with um, Ant-Man in one of the other annuals. And that one's a little bit more forgivable because of the humor that goes along with it. But it's it's not that great at all, either. Um, oh, and then he also does a Captain Universe as a baby. Uh, like a baby gets okay. the Captain Universe powers. And that one is even worse. Yeah. Didn't like um, I actually did like the, uh, the Mike Zek uh, Sandman story. Yeah, yeah, that one was pretty uh, good. It, it was it, it was interesting. It's not what I expect from Zach in terms of art, but I really liked it. And actually, I got to say about the main story, um, I think that um, at least the first annual, uh, I guess the, what, the Amazing Spider-Man annual, I think it was. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the fact that you had Gil Kane. 
Yeah, um, it was, totally. was cool. And like, that I don't think cool. it holds up for the entire issue, but the first few pages are so strong. And then I feel like it starts to maybe they ran out, like ran out of time or maybe hit a deadline. Like it's definitely, it starts to lose yep. some of that sharpness. It really does. And like they start forgetting about backgrounds and there's a lot of shortcuts for sure. Those first few pages definitely start out strong. And I did like, uh, this is something I used to like about old annuals is you have uh, the diagram for Peter and MJ's new pad in Soho. Yep. Yep. That one's good. I, I, I missed old touches like that. Like that, that stuff was always fun. Um, yeah, there's a Rocket Racer story and a Prowler story that are fairly forgettable in here as well. And But I did like, there's one story with um, Mary Jane when she's, um, when she has jury duty and it's a case against Spider-Man. Um, I liked that one a lot. I thought the writing okay. in that one was really nice. It was written by Peter David. Well, one last thing I want to say is we do get to have a Todd McFarlane story uh, on the Prowler. Oh yeah, that's right. Doing and his you can tell spawn. he loves capes. Yeah, <laughs> that was something that Michelini had noted at one point. Is that that's why we saw Prowler originally in um, I think what three fifteen or something of Amazing Spider-Man because he knew that Todd liked drawing capes and he's like, all right, well, Spider-Man doesn't really have any you know cape uh, villains, so here's Prowler and he knocked it out of the park. <laughs> yeah, he sure did. It was nice to. I guess that's kind of like McFarlane's last go before he goes into the other into the uh, Spider-Man solo series. So in, in ways of final thoughts, I mean, this is an interesting hodgepodge. Um, and a part of it's because they had to include issues of Spectacular and Web. They couldn't really get away with not doing it. But um, because they're doing that, it adds a bit of inconsistency because you're not just getting one writer's vision. You're getting two writers, one who's telling a story through two books that we don't even ever get to see the payoff to. And then we get to see Michelani kind of doing his own thing. So you have a bit of a, a discord there. You also have a lot of artistic inconsistency because, you know, you have a tryout, a tryout, McFarlane coming back for his swan song. Then you have you know, some great issues or some interesting issues of, uh, of Larson. And then you have these annuals, which are really their own, you know, artistic grab bag. Um, so there's a lot of inconsistency in this volume, whereas some of the other epic collections we've gotten so far in the Amazing Spider-Man line are a lot more consistent in tone, uh, in visual you know, sensibility. So I think this is the one that kind of gives you the most whiplash for your buck. It's true. Whiplash is a good word for it. Yeah, the artistic inconsistency is the thing that stands out the most. There are so many artists in this book. It's it's unreal. Um, it's it's so crazy. And it's just an odd time. It was a transition time for Amazing Spider-Man. So I think that's part of it. But I'd, I'd say I liked about maybe just under half of it. I liked most of the cosmic stuff. Um, okay. Some like I like the the main annual storyline and uh, and the the Venom story was pretty good, but yeah. Other than that, I'm looking forward to some of the other um, the other Spider-Man volumes. I think they're going to be a lot better. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just some of the ones that have already been published. I mean, there's some great material in there that we're going to get and um, yeah I'm super pumped for those because as I said this was not the first Spider-Man volume I even picked up like this, this just didn't really excite me I mean I think uh, the first Spider-Man one that excited me was actually I guess the next one we'll eventually talk about which was Ghost of the Past which was you know 84 to 86 yeah. uh, you had uh, you know Todd uh, not Todd uh, Tom DeFalco you had Ron Friends like you had a dream team working on the book like that's 
uh, amazing content. Like you, there's a, a few fill-ins there, obviously, because they always had issues with deadlines. But you had some great material from those guys in a very consistent tone and sensibility, and just a great time to be a Spider-Man fan. And there was a lot of great um, subplots. Like it wasn't just the main thrust of the action. You cared about the subplots, and the subplots mattered, and they added up to something. That's what I love about these epic collections: is that you get immersed in this world from a different time, and it's not just about the main big stories that are happening. It's about the threads that are going throughout them especially when you have you know one writer you know doing a, a long run which you just don't see as much anymore no you don't um i will say though that there is a little bit of spotty restoration in this volume i wanted to point out in particular page 173 because um, this is the most glaring one okay. to me the, the the bottom left panel um how it's it's purple but it's really splotchy purple. Oh yeah. So this, and I checked this against the actual issue, and that's not the—it's not the case. It's just a solid color. This really oh. is an issue uh, um, of a bad Photoshop job here, because someone has um, has just uh, erased one big color, and those are the leftover little bits of like you know off white or whatever it was when they scanned in the art, and they're they just forgot to color the rest of it or something or to erase the rest of it. it it's it's a it's a really bad mistake wow that they put in here yeah that's not good no uh the cover here they didn't take from an issue of amazing spider-man which i thought was kind of a surprise because yeah. you have covers by mcfarland you have covers by larson and they're a little bit more recognizable or um you know people are just memorable like you have the one of the tri-sentinels stepping on spider-man i guess it's not showing him with his cosmic power so that's maybe why they didn't use it well this one but isn't either well but you have the kind of the sense that something's going on although he may just be gesturing our crotch towards us it's hard to tell yeah um, no i agree it was an odd choice to put a non-amazing title uh, cover on the, the collection. Yeah, and, and as you said, like, not even necessarily the strongest of the non-amazing Spider-Man issues either. But like, I don't know why, like on the back, uh, the back cover, you have the Spider-Man punch in the Hulk. Why is that not the main cover of your book? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, and especially I found like the, the Epic Collections like to really put characters from other lines on the covers of their Amazing Spider-Man, like the Fall for Grace one uses the cover from an annual that has Black Widow and Shang-Chi on it and you know um, that's right yeah the, the first volume that they released for the Hulk has Captain America on the cover and the, fa the Fantastic Four into the time stream has Thor on the cover Thor and Iron Man why not put Hulk on the cover of this one too but yeah absolutely yeah. or at least just not a, it's not a memorable cover like if you were to say if you had to pick out all these covers that are in this book which one is the most memorable or which one have you seen before or remember seeing it's not this no, you know, and I just feel like you're you're obviously playing into people's nostalgia. You're playing into them wanting to, you know, be able to enjoy these classic eras of their favorite characters. So want to have a cover that really speaks to that and says, "Hey, you remember this? You remember when Spider-Man punched Hulk into space? Read this." Not, <laughs> I'm this weird, you know, energy kind of around Spider-Man is just kind of gesturing towards you, and you got Pace Pot Pete behind them. Like that's none none of that really Way screams to, to the, the book, reader. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, especially because this is, again, the first Amazing Spider-Man Epic Collection that was released. So you kind of kind of wonder, like, they're really just banking on the name because uh, the cover's not really doing it for you. It's not the best selection of their issues. It just always felt like an odd choice when there's so much Amazing Spider-Man that has not been collected in, in any real format. And th this is what we get. Yeah, they're starting up the line. They're still figuring things out. They obviously get better as they go along. That's for sure. Absolutely, well, and it's yeah. nice to know that, like you know, we have so many volumes to come. <laughs> well, it's uh, it was great chatting with you, Adam. Thanks for being on the show here. I, I'm looking forward to when we talk about the next installment of this, which is Ghost of the Past. Super pumped for that one. Yeah. That's going to be awesome. Me too. <laughs> We encourage you to send us some emails with your thoughts and comments on that volume to epicmarvelpodcast at gmail.com. You can search us out on uh, Facebook and Twitter. Um, and, uh, yeah, talk to all of us about what you like about these books. But that's it for us, and we will see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>